Let's open our Bibles to John 14, where Paul was reading for us a little earlier. I've entitled the message this morning, The Gift of His Peace, picking it up in verse 25 to 31. Now these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so do I. So I do. Arise and let us go from here. We haven't been um, in John for a couple of weeks. Um, in a short review of the Gospel of John, we've talked about it being divided into five different sections. Section one, if you'll remember, is um, the reason John is actually writing this Gospel. It's different because he's zeroing in from the very first verse, John 1.1, 1, 1, to the very last one, the deity of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna see that this morning in Isaiah. Um, that Jesus is called, uh, we're going to refer to Prince of Peace, but also in that same section, he's called um, the Almighty God as one of his titles. So the deity of Christ, uh, and that, that's if you're taking notes, chapter 1, 1 through 18. Section 2 is about the Lord being presented when he actually came. Uh, John the Baptist presented him. And that's the section two, chapter 119 through chapter four. And then uh, the third section, the largest of the five, chapters five through 12, is the opposition to the Son of God. Obviously, the religious leaders are threatened. The crowds are following him. One of the reasons they're threatened is that his words had no place in them. Another reason is Uh, They were afraid that their position and power would be taken away. And they wanted him dead at any cost. And this is highlighted in chapters 5 through 12. Now as we get into the fourth section where we are this morning, it began in chapter 13. And from 13 to 17, now we're talking personal words just to the disciples. The Lord is through speaking to the multitudes. He now has one-on-one time that he's explaining to them his love for the Father, his disdain for the ruler of this world. So these are personal, intimate words meant not only for the disciples then, but for you and I today. And then we'll conclude uh, the fifth section with chapters 18 to 21. But as we look at John 14, let's look at the first two verses, 25 and 26, uh, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. He had called them. They had been with him day and night for three years. And in 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, the word there for helper is paracletus or comforter, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Uh, This is uh, actually a prophecy. And I'll be referring to prophecy a couple times this morning. But this one here is, when we read it, it's future tense. It hasn't happened yet. But when I go, and another gospel says it's absolutely expedient that I go, because if I don't go, then I can't send the Holy Spirit back. Now, it's the same trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all the same. They're all one. Jesus was not omnipresent. 
That means everywhere at one time because he was all human and he was all God at the same time. So he could successfully invest his life into 12 people. They say that's the optimum number if you're working with somebody in training, that you can um, effectively pour yourself into that number of people. Well, if the Father was sending now the Holy Spirit, which is omnipresent, can be all places at one time, you've just broadened your ability to work one-on-one with people from 12 to as many. And that's why it's expedient that the Lord leaves so that he can send the third part of the Trinity to interact with you and I. What will he do? He'll give you his peace. He will bring all things back to remembrance. Sometimes you're talking with people and all of a sudden the subject turns to the Lord and all of a sudden you get these verses just kind of coming from the back of your head. And you go, I forgot I even knew those things. Well, it's the Holy Spirit bringing them back, just like he says here. And it happens to, to us all the time. And so that's the promise that he's referring to in verse 26, to bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. And this is a prophecy. It hasn't happened yet because the Lord is still with him. Where it is fulfilled, I'm going to have you turn there. This fulfillment is in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Let's go to Acts 1. And um, look at verses 1 through 8. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. In other words, guys, don't do a thing. Don't go anywhere, but wait for the promise. Well, this is what he's talking about in John 14. And that he's going to send the comforter And that's why I would call this the uh, promise of his peace. Don't do anything until you have received this power, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, Therefore, when he had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Still some confusion here. After everything they've been to, he's talking about going back to the Father, but that's not everything they learned as they grew up. When Messiah comes, the kingdom comes. They didn't see the two comings. And then it says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you will receive Power, the word is duminous, that's where we get our word dynamite from. When the Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Appleton, (laughs) and the ends of the earth. The gospel is being taken to the ends of the earth. And so what Jesus is prophesying in John 14 We have its fulfillment talked about here in the first eight verses of Acts chapter one. We have its fulfillment in Acts chapter two. The promise of the comforter, peace for his followers. But not only peace, but the ability to bring back to remembrance. Everything that Jesus had been teaching them for the last three years, the Holy Spirit would bring those things back to him especially the peace. Man has been seeking for peace since the fall of Adam and Eve. And I want to go back to where this all began this morning. So I'm going to have you turn back all the way to the very beginning, go back to the book of Genesis, and um, 
Oh my goodness, what it must have been like. We don't know how long it was um, before Adam and Eve fell. We really don't know how long it was. Um, As you go back to chapter 2, verse 15, we have just Adam alone. Then the Lord took the man and put him in a garden of Eden to tend and keep it. What a great job. Um, He had fellowship, walked with God every single day. His biggest um, job was probably cutting roses with no thorns on it. (laughs) No thorns till after the curse. And the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may, may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. We don't find um, the tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil and tree of life, the tree of life again in the book of Revelation. And then he talks about it's not good that man should be alone. So he made a companion. The Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever... Adam called each living creature, that was his name. What a great job that he had in harmony and fellowship with the Lord. Um, uh, The fear of man was not placed in animals at that time. It is today. And there's the natural fear that an animal has to a human being. Uh, so Adam gave names to the cattle, to the birds of the air, every beast of the field, but for Adam those not found a help or comparable. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in the place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman. Now Adam was made from the dust of the earth, but not Eve. Eve came from the side of a man. And he brought her to the man and said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he called her woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They'll become one flesh. So what I want to point out here in verse 25 is innocence. Harmony with God, peace with God, peace with the animal kingdom, And they were both naked, the man and the woman, and they were not ashamed. There was this original innocence and this fellowship uh, that they had. Man knew only God's peace and no shame whatsoever. And he had dominion over everything that walked and actually named uh, the animals as he sought fit. I hope we get instant replay on that someday that brief period of time. And then in verse three, we're introduced to the adversary that John was talking about in John 14, the one that he has nothing to do with, the ruler of this world. This raises so many questions that people have about Adam's fall. Um, Why was he created in the first place? What was his position? According to Ezekiel and Isaiah, he possessed the highest of all the created beings in heaven. And the ruler of the world was created with perfect wisdom and beauty. Now when you think of the devil, what do you think of? (laughs) Uh, Well, he's got a uh, a pitchfork, of course, and a red suit, and he's ugly, right? Just the opposite. He was the most beautiful creature God had ever created. And he had, he was perfect in wisdom. And yet it tells us in Isaiah why the fall came. He coveted the worship that the father had. He wanted to be worshiped. And when that was found in him, the Lord rejected him and he fell. Now how he could persuade one-third of all the angelic beings to rebel with him is beyond my comprehension. And that he did. And that's what we're told in in Genesis, and we're also told that in the book of Revelation. So we find that, um, picking up in chapter three, 
the introduction to this creature. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? Now he has not changed his MO since the beginning. He's challenging God's word. That hasn't changed. He's challenging God's word today. I just read this morning in Finland, they're outlying Christianity. That's breaking news right now. I read that this morning. And um, doing anything in his power so that what we're simply sitting down and doing this morning, um, studying John chapter 14, a Bible study on God's peace and how he wants it for all. It's a threat to him. He wants to change it. He wants a counterfeit of it. So what does he say? Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And here comes the first lie. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will know, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God is holding something back from you guys. And he lays that out to them. There's so much more that you could have, but he's holding back on you. And it was, we read in the New Testament, it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but it was Eve And she was the one that was tempted. But that doesn't let Adam off the hook because he also partook of the fruit. Now what's interesting to me is the lure that hasn't changed in his MO, what I call his uh, method of operation or his OM, however you want to say it. Challenging God's word in six and seven, it describes a temptation. So when the woman saw the tree was good for fruit and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. So she looked at it and goes, you know, that's a pretty good looking fruit tree and it's good for food. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with eating food? Well, what's wrong with that? is God says, don't do it. That's what's wrong with that. So now we have a temptation contradicting clearly what God said. And it was the very first time that man had to choose. Now, the reason I believe that there has to be Satan, the reason that God will allow him to exist a thousand years during the millennium, only sealed and locked up, is if man is going to have a meaningful relationship with his creator, And the only commandment is that you love him. God never made a robot. I think technology is catching up with the Bible because now I'm seeing things that say I am not a robot. (laughs) You're not a robot. You have a free will. But there was no free will unless there's an alternative. So a choice has to be given. Lucifer's part in all this was to provide an option of obeying the word of God, or yielding to the temptation of the God of this world. That's what Jesus calls him. The God of, in John 14, he says, the God of this world has nothing in me. Well, where and when did he become the God of this world? Answer, Genesis 3. The choice was made. They could love God, keep his word, or they could yield to the temptation. But here, for the very first time, a choice is implied. And the choice that was made caused the forfeiture of planet Earth to the God of this world. Now the good news is, in Revelation chapter five, Jesus goes up to the Father and takes a scroll out of his hands and he says, I'll take that back. You see, Jesus defeated the devil on Calvary. Good place for an amen. It's already, the work is over, it's finished. But it's sort of like Christmas time. You go and put money down, payment on something, but you don't pick it up till later. Jesus is claiming what he already purchased in Revelation 5. He's taking back that which he legally won on Calvary. 
In the meantime, people are still choosing. I'm glad that the kingdom wasn't established here because that means the gospel would not have gone out to the Gentile world. The gospel, the kingdom is for Jews only until this period of time that we call the church age has been for the last 2,000 years. You and I are a result of the work of the Holy Spirit over the last 2,000 years. But every person here had to do one or two things in order to have a relationship with them. You had to choose. Either choose him to be the Lord of your life or something else. So that's sort of where we're, we're headed this morning. So it was good for food. What's wrong with that? Well, the Lord says, don't eat it because the day you eat of it, you'll die. Well, it was, it was pleasant to the eyes. I find that interesting. You know why? Because, somebody say why, please. Okay, thank you. I'm glad you asked. The Bible says that man looks out the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Isn't any store that you go in, isn't it covered with magazines and how to look good? Esquire, Cosmopolitan, and um, the world is enamored in being good looking. And so she looked at it and it was good to eat. And a man has fashioned his being in wanting to be actually good looking, pleasant to the eye, looking good. And then it says it will also make men wise. Well, what's in the news a lot today is the importance of furthering your education, uh, forgiving college loans, make sure your kids get into college. I mean, that's the most important thing in life, right? Parents, get your kids to go to college, answer that question. No, it's not. That is not the most important thing in life. It's got a lot of people and a lot of debt. And in our colleges today, um, the Christians are in the, the eyesight and the target of the, the professors that are there trying to undermine your faith. I got a word for the college professor. First of all, let me quote Colossians 2, if you're taking notes, verse 8, 9, and 10. Beware. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. The first deceit came from the deceiver in Genesis chapter three. He deceived the woman with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those three things. Um, Be careful, lest you be cheated through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So now we have a contrast. We have the ways of the world. We're told in Romans, don't be conformed to the world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can show what that good and perfect will of God is. There's a choice again. Colossians 2.9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Since the garden, man has been seeking peace. He lost it there. Uh, we read in verse seven, the last verse, the result of their sin and disobedience and their choice, then the eyes of both men were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed leaves together and made themselves covering. But they were innocent, a childlike innocence until then. The Lord says in Matthew, unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the little child like? Well, he simply believes what dad tells him. Why is the sky blue, dad? Oh, God felt like he thought that was a pretty color, and that's why he painted it blue. Okay, dad, if that's what you say, because just because dad said so. Now, in John 14, um, there has not been peace Let's go back to John 14, just for a second. And here, the Lord now is talking about his peace, not as the world gives, but as he gives. In John 14, Jesus promising peace, why? Because man is empty. Paul took a whole chapter in Romans chapter eight to explain what happened in the garden. I'm gonna have you go there because it not only affected the garden, it affected creation and the animal life included. 
So we're looking at Romans 8, picking it up in verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. That means creation itself is groaning. Creation at one time was perfect, no curse upon it, but man's punishment was God cursed the ground and has been groaning ever since. Verse 20, for the creation, that's including us now, was subject to futility. The word futility there can be um, interpreted in a couple different ways. My favorite way of interpreting it, uh, there's three or four different meanings for it, but was subject to emptiness. In other words, man became empty, tried to fill a void, that peace that he had with the Father was gone. I believe they were clothed in light. What happened when they disobeyed God? The light went away, and their nakedness was revealed. And they they were out of fellowship now for the very first time uh, from their Father. So verse 20 here tells us that there's a vacuum, an emptiness, a futility. Not willingly, we don't want that, because of him who subjected it in hope. Nature abhors a vacuum and will try anything to fill it. Man was subject to emptiness because of man's fall. And ever since that time, there's been this vacuum. Every person alive, whether they'll admit it or not, has this void inside. And the only thing that can bring about satisfaction, real satisfaction, is being restored to fellowship with your creator. But there's no doubt about it. Every person is subject to futility or emptiness, not willingly, we don't want that. The world tries everything to find peace, to find satisfaction, because of him who's subject to hope. Because the creation itself, verse 21, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. I think it's, the Lord said right before he comes back, there's gonna be more of that happening, more of the earth groaning with um, the winds and the seas increasing in intensity and so on and so forth. And not only they, but we who are the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption. Well, he's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. He says, I promise. I promise that I'm gonna come back for you. I promise that you're gonna have a new body that'll never have to sleep, it'll never have to be hungry, and that'll be your body according to 1 Corinthians 15. We have an earthly body and we have a heavenly body. And this is a promise. And we're groaning for that. Believe me, the older I get, the more I groan. And I'm waiting and longing to be able to do the things I used to do, uh, physically, athletically. And uh, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Okay, Lord, you've told us to be patient, and we're praying that you are coming, you said you would, and we understand that your word tells us that what happened in the Garden of Eden, that man became longing once again to have that meaningful relation, looking for peace. All right, can I do a little sidetrack here this morning? I got carried away with us thinking about peace, being a product of the 60s, um, I mean, we had our own, we, we wanted peace in the 60s. And so we came up with our own sign. Peace. Peace, man. And we longed for it. And we created a sign for it. By the way, you've got to be real careful with this sign, uh, depending upon what part of the world you live in. Uh, one of our Calvary Chapel pastors was doing a crusade in Mexico, and he wanted to warm up to the crowd. So it goes like this. 
uh, in Mexico in that area, it would be equivalent if you were cut off on a highway and somebody used another hand gesture. <laughs> so imagine you want to warm yourself up to a crowd. You go, peace. And everybody's going, huh? <laughs> That's what it means in, in some cultures. Uh, the peace sign, especially if you turn it, turn it around from this to this, unknowingly. Check it out on your own. I did a little Googling on it, what parts of the world that's true in. We wanted peace. Um, We greeted people with the peace sign um, and came up empty. We didn't find it in um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, looking for peace. It wasn't there. None of those things brought true satisfaction. And then in my time, I was privileged to be a part of what we call the Jesus Movement. And um, it started with a handful of people with Pastor Chuck. And as a result, the Jesus movement was birthed and we went from this to this. And we went one way. That was, that was our sign. The 60s, this was our sign. But when we met Jesus, he found us and he gave us his peace. And now the sign was this, one way. And it was our greeting. It was sort of if you were with another Christian or something, one way, bro. And yeah, one way, man. Not this, not this. So it was our greeting. So all over the world. Um, Did you know even the Vulcans have a sign for peace? Yeah, they do. My birthday buddy is Spock. We're good friends, even though we've never met each other. But, uh, well, I'll show you a little bit of Spock this morning. Here's his peace sign. I'm cheating if you know the sign well, but I thought I'd have a little fun this morning. So I'm going to show you how this came about. And I'm going to show Spock right now. Father, my grandfather, and my brother sitting in the, the bench seats. Women were upstairs. Five or six guys get up on the bema on the stage and they're facing the congregation. They get this Jewish over their heads. And they start this chanting. I think it's called duchening. And uh, my father said to me, don't look. So everybody's got their, their eyes covered with their hands, and they've got their talit down over their faces, or turned away, turned their back to these guys. And I hear this strange sound coming from them. They're not singers. They were shouters and dissonant. It was all discordant. And they were doing like that kind of wailing. And all discordant, not together, not in unison. And then the leader would shout out, and the rest of them would respond, it was chilling. Whoa. Something, something major is happening here. So I peeked, and I saw them with their hands stuck out from beneath their telly like this towards the congregation. Wow. One day, we're making the Star Trek series, television series. We come to a, a very lovely script called Amok Time. It was the first time we are seeing other Balkans, other people of my race. So I was hoping to find some touches that could develop the story of the Vulcan sociology, history, whatever, ritual. So I said to the director, I think we should have some special greeting that Vulcans do. Because we, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, humans, we, we have these rituals, that we, the things that we do. Um, we shake hands, we, we nod to each other, we bow to each other, we salute each other. What do Vulcans do? So I suggested this. He said, okay. And that's how we, we did it as a greeting, a Vulcan greeting. Now, boy, that just took off through the culture. It was amazing. Within days after it was on the air, I was getting it on the street. People doing this to me, waving to me in this Vulcan gesture. That, that's interesting. And it's been that way to this day. It's almost 50 years later, people are still doing it. It just touched the magic chord. Most people, to this day, still don't know what it's all about. People don't realize they're blessing each other with this. <laughs> Did you catch that he's in the synagogue and the rabbi is doing this? I'm cheating again, of course, because I can't do it. I'm not Falcon. <laughs> and so I put that up 
as a sign that when they do that, it actually comes from what a rabbi would do in a synagogue when he would bless the people. And that's where that comes from, that greeting. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, you said you were getting sidetracked, but now you're way off track. (laughs) No, there's a reason I went there. Because you might not think God is into gestures and signs, and I'm here to tell you this morning that he is. That God has his own sign, and it's hidden in Numbers chapter 2 in the Old Testament. So if you'll go with me to the book of Numbers chapter 2, we have the children of Israel traveling. And they would had the wilderness tabernacle. And in the wilderness tabernacle, every time they would break camp, the whole Holy Spirit, the cloud would move. And then they would travel until the Shekinah glory of God stopped. Then they would set up camp again. But this had to be done decently in order because our God is a God who's decently doing things in order. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'd have to, and I'll summarize. Basically, when they would break camp, you have the 12 tribes. The Levites aren't numbered. All the rest of them, if I would read verse 1 through 9, are all those who would be on the east side of the tabernacle. In verses 10 through 16, we would have all the tribes that would be lined up south of the temple. Um, in the middle, verse 17, you actually had um, the camp of the Levites with the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Verses 18 to 24, the tribes that would be on the west, and from 25 to 31, we would have on the north. So basically, if um, remember when Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel? and he went to a high place to look down on it. I want to show you what Balaam would have saw with these numbers, and I'm going to put it up on the screen right now. This is what it looked like from, from above. That's a cross, my friends. And those are the tribes, and those are the numbers. And when you take up all the numbers, and you put them on the east and the west and the north and the south, with the tabernacle in the middle, you have a picture. Does God have a sign? Oh, he's got a sign, and Balaam saw it. It's a sign of the cross. Do you ever have somebody come up to you and say, hey, man, what sign are you? I don't tell them I'm an Aries. I don't tell them that. I said, my sign is the sign of the cross, like this. What's your sign, man? The sign is the cross. A lot of times for photo ops, if people want to take pictures, I like to do this or get another person to do it with me. So... As we talk about looking for peace, that peace sign that's not there, that was discovered with the one-way sign uh, that we have. Um, Let's go back to John 14. The Lord had the sign of the cross all the way back in the book of Numbers on how for 40 years the children of Israel were camped up and camped out in the very... Uh, sign of, a, of the cross itself. All right, we got through 25 and 26. Let's do 26 and 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, we're talking about um, a peace that is not of this world. And it's a peace, keep your finger here and just turn to Isaiah chapter nine, real quickly. And one of the titles, we read this at Christmas time, for the Lord, uh, Isaiah nine, verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That would be um, the, for unto us a child is born, that's the earthly perspective. Unto us a son is given, that would be the heavenly perspective. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Here's one of the places that equates the Father equal to the Son, even though while he was man, he said the Father was greater to him. Here, before taking on the incarnation, he is equal to the Father. Matter of fact, the Father and him are one. Mighty God, Everlasting Father is the name for Jesus. 
And then what's the last one? Prince of Peace. And when the Prince of Peace comes, then we will have true lasting peace on earth. Uh, The wonderful prophecy that we have in Micah states, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. That's Micah 4, verse 3 to 4. His reign will be a righteous and just reign. War will then be a thing of the past. Everyone will live in his own house peacefully and unafraid. Children will play in safety and in the streets. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Interesting, the animosity in the animal kingdom is now restored to where the lion and the lamb lay together. You will be able to go out at night without fear. But that isn't happening yet. I jotted these notes down as I was walking out the door this morning. This has just happened within the last two days. There's a human, according to CBN reports, there is a humani, uh, humanitarian disaster where we have one million Syrians that are fleeing um, uh, from Iran and being persecuted from Iran and Syria. And that people don't know about it. It's not getting better. The world isn't becoming a, a better place. It's becoming um, more disastrous. Nobody's reporting on this incredible famine of locusts in Africa. Are you guys aware of that? It's, it's uh, the creating a famine of unprecedented, like they say it's never hap- um, happened literally in history, and now they say it has the potential to grow 500 times greater than it currently is by June. What did Jesus say about the last days? The earth will be groaning, earthquakes, famines, pestilence. All of a sudden the whole world is freaked out about people flying from China and uh, going to unprecedented precautions so that this plague that, that the Lord talked about In other words, it's all coming together. It's like the perfect storm of all these events. And uh, when the Prince of Peace comes, what he's telling us, then we will have true lasting peace on the earth. But until then, the Lord says, no, there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars in diverse places, earthquakes. And we see all that happening right now. But he promised peace. So in John 14, it says, he's gonna give us his peace. And I thought, what would be a good illustration to show Jesus as an example of this peace? And I found it in Mark chapter four. So if you'd turn with me to Mark chapter four, picking it up in verse 35, Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And he says, come on, guys, let's go over to the other side, verse 31. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, come on, let's, let's go over to the other side. And when they had left the multitudes, they took him alone in the boat as he was, and another little boats were also with him. And then a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now these are seasoned sailors. These are all fishermen. They're fearing for their life. What about the Lord? Sound asleep on a pillow. Why? Because he said, guys, we're gonna go from this side of the Sea of Galilee and then we're gonna go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The word of God has spoken. Do you think there's any power in the universe that's gonna stop that from happening? Good pace for an amen. Notice what he does here. He is totally at peace in the midst of a storm. And when the Lord is in the boat with you, no matter what storm of life you're going through, if the Lord's in the boat with you, you have nothing to fear. And if you fear, I I want you to see what he does here. He doesn't come out and go, boy, but guys, I'm sure glad you woke me up. You're in big trouble. He doesn't say that at all. What does he say? 
he arose and rebuked the wind and said, peace be still. And the wind ceased and it was a great calm. And then he looks at the guys and says, why are you so fearful? Well, Lord, it's kind of obvious what was happening here. We were going down for the third time. And he's saying, no, you weren't. I told you we're going from here to the other side. And he showed us an example of his peace in the midst of the storm. He fell asleep on a pillow. And he doesn't comfort them, he chides them. And he says, where's your faith? How is it you have no faith that I'm with you in this storm and nothing's gonna happen to you that's outside of my will? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? My peace. Here's a picture of the Lord's peace in the midst of the storm. His peace versus the world's attempt at peace. And as I thought about this, uh, before I was saved, I lived with a bunch of guys in Oshkosh, and and one of them was the uh, TM teacher, Transcendental Meditation teacher, uh, for the University of Oshkosh. And um, his job, and he was instructed, and uh, he was trained to know which sounds you would respond to, in TM you receive what's called a mantra and they think everybody has a different one. Well, I found out through my friend that there's only 15 of them. There's 15 different sounds. The one that you'd be most familiar with and you've heard probably would be Om. And what basically you're doing is you're instructed and, um, um, to clear your mind, get in a peaceful, relaxed position, and basically meditate on Nothing. Let me just, this wasn't a part of my notes, but I'm thinking about it. uh, Because imagine being the most successful, most famous, wealthiest band in the world. Yes, I'm talking the Beatles. They have it all. All the fame, all the money, anything they want, they can have. And yet, they weren't satisfied. So what do they do? They end up in India visiting a Makarishi Yogi. And as a result of that, that's how it ended up on college campuses in America. They had it all, but they weren't satisfied. No peace inside, so they thought they could find it through transcendental meditation. Well, I thought, I thought that through, and when I got saved, the lights really went on. Because I thought about it, what are they doing? They are meditating on nothing. Okay, nothing. That's what you're meditating on. Versus what? Take out your psalm this morning, will you? In verse two, Psalm 21. Verse two says, you have given his heart's desire and will not withhold the request of his lips. Selah. What does that mean? That means meditate upon what you just read. It goes on to say, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Joshua, chapter one, verse eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success and may I add, you will have peace of mind. So instead of meditating on nothing, which produces nothing, (laughs) zero plus zero is zero, but anything that's good and perfect and peaceable, or contrary to nothing, we have God's word where it goes on to say in Psalm 63, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Psalm 77, six. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes 
diligent speech. I will also meditate on your works and talk of your deeds. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And my favorite verse in the Bible, one of them, (laughs) thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. So what is a world peace? A great big nothing. And you can be the wealthiest, richest, most famous person in the world and you're still looking for peace inside. And there's nothing there. Contrary to what? What we're doing this morning, whether you realize it's not, we sing this song, one of my favorite songs, you satisfy my soul. You know what satisfies my soul? Having a good Bible study. It's food to the soul. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And after we hear it, then we meditate upon it, and it brings about the fruit of of the spirit. Peace, joy, love. That's his peace. This is what we're told to meditate upon. Back to John. Begin to wind this up this morning. Verses 28 and 29, John 14. You have heard me say to you that I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to my father for my father is greater than I. And then this verse, the importance of Bible prophecy. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. What is this saying? He's talking here about an event that's going to happen and he's telling it to them before it happens so that when it happens, their faith would be increased. What is is he referring to? The promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit back, the comforter. Now go back to last week, chapter 13, verse 19, and he says the same thing, but it's a different prophecy. He says in verse 19 of chapter 13, now I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, the verse before it, he's prophesying about Judas Iscariot. He says, one of you guys around the table here is gonna betray me. And he says, I'm gonna tell it to you now so that when it happens, then you're gonna believe. I call that prophecy. Only God can tell you something that's going to happen before it happens. Good place for an amen. Why do we have Bible prophecy? Well, the Lord tells us here, to increase your faith. So he says, I've told you all things. He says, a master doesn't tell his servant things. He says, but I call you friends, and I'm gonna tell you everything. I'm gonna spill everything that the Father's going to do. I'm gonna lay it out, and then when you watch it happen, then you're gonna have, your faith is gonna be increased. For almost 1,700 years, they had no idea what the book of Revelation was about. It's all about Israel. Big problem. There is no Israel. (laughs) Not since 70 AD. What do we do with this? Well, they allegorized it. They spiritualized it. They did everything except for taking it at face value. And then what happened on May 14th, 1948? Just what the Lord said. They became a nation again. And now we're watching a fulfillment of all that he said would happen and by the way, he said the nation, that generation that sees that happen is gonna see the fulfillment of all things. It's a toss-up for me. What time would I rather be alive? Walking and talking with Jesus with the other 12? Or being in the time when we're actually watching all these things come together? So the Lord chose me to put in this time domain, but, and I'm not complaining with that because uh, this is where he has us right here. So in verse This one, the reason for prophecy is so that when it comes to pass, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. All right, let's finish up with 30 and 31 this morning. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, going back to the garden, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father and that as the Father gave me commandments, so do I. Arise and let us go from here. Now Jesus tells us concerning the one back in the garden that started all of this, the liar has nothing to do with me. The Lord says I have nothing to do with him. Contrast, verse 31, 
the one he has everything to do with is the Father. I only do those things that please the Father. Oh, I wish I could say that. Amen? I wish I could say, I only do the things that please the Father. Closing question this morning. Do you know the Prince of Peace? Simple question. Do you have the free gift of peace that he offers? You need to understand, like we have in universalism or other false doctrines today, the work has been done, it's finished, but it's only presented as a gift. The gift of peace is what I've called this this morning. It's there for the taking, but the Holy Spirit is not in the arm-twisting business. He presents truth. He presents his desire. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's no salvation. There's no conversion without conviction. You have to be aware that you've broken his commandments. You're part of the fall, like Adam and Eve. But he has a plan that's been fulfilled, but the choice is yours. And understand, you have to make the choice. I have people that I know, you go, you know, Dwight, someday I'm going to take you up in that. I'll think it through, and someday I'm going to get to that. And basically, they're saying no. Why do they say no? Because they love this world more than giving their lives to Christ. They want to be the Lord of their own life. So in coming to the Lord, we're acknowledging that I can't be boss anymore. We call him Lord, and so he is. So it's a choice, and as I hear the gospel being presented over and over and over again, I basically see just two kinds of people when the question is asked of his, one's response to his offer of this love and this peace that he offers. And some respond. They go, this is too good to be true. Are you kidding me? Who would turn down something like that? And they readily accept the love of God when they hear it. It touches their heart that God would do that. On the other hand, we have people that it's necessary for them to go through very difficult times. They're stubborn. They make excuses. They, they put it off and say, maybe someday. So the Lord allows crises, crises to arise in that person's life to wake them up. This last February 5th, Kirk Douglas died at the age of 103 years old. Kirk Douglas is not his real name. You see, he's Jewish. His real name is Isur Danielakovich. On February 13th, 1991, he was in a helicopter crash. Two people were killed, but he survived. He crushed three vertebrae when the helicopter came down and he's three inches shorter. When I saw Kurt Douglas, and I saw that, that looked like Spartacus to me. <laughs> he's too short. And then I found out he's three inches shorter because of the impact of the crash. And it made him three inches shorter. But it made him ask the question because it really got his attention, and it bothered him. And it shook him at 80, 83 years old Um, why am I alive and the others died? This bothered him. He had to have an answer to this and as a result, he rededicated his life to Judaism. As a young man, he forsook it all and he says, I don't want to be famous and I want to be rich and that's what he had. And then it took this crisis in his life to sort of have a wake-up call. And as a result of it, he had his second bar mitzvah at the age of 83. Does everybody know what a bar mitzvah is? When you're 13 years old, you're allowed, you're considered to be able to study the scripture seriously with the men. Well, he did that, but then he blew it off. Just like a a lot of young people uh, grow up in the church and then they forsake it and they go through some crisis in life and they, they try to get back to where they were. That's what happened to Kurt Douglas. And as a result, he really did have a second bar mitzvah at the age of 83. It caused his son, Michael Douglas, to return to his Jewish faith. And if you saw any of the video clips, you saw the love between that father and his son, and it was genuine. Kurt Douglas had to go through a crisis to come back to his faith. My prayer 
um, is that he came to know his Jewish Messiah before all this. In closing, let me say this. Jesus came as a child. He bore your sins in his death on the cross. He is coming again, as we read this morning, in power and glory. He is going to reign forever. Nothing's going to change that. You will either be there rejoicing in his kingdom with him, or you will be with those who have been cast out. Those in his kingdom will be there because they have chosen Jesus as their king. The Bible says, choose yourself this day whom you will serve. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. That's my choice. I encourage you to make the right choice and to follow Jesus Christ. He's the only way you're gonna find peace, perfect peace, and you're not gonna find it in anything else except that one way, amen? The last thing we read here in verse 31, it says, arise, okay, arise, and let us go from here. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we consider the great promise, the gift of your peace that you want to give to us, but you will not force us. You give us so much proof through prophecies being fulfilled that you are the Messiah. And Lord, I pray this morning for those that don't have to be hit along the side of the head with a two by four, they're not stubborn, but they would respond to the free gift that you offered to die in their place on Calvary's cross. And Lord, as your word says today, if we hear your voice, don't harden your heart, but allow the Prince of Peace to come in you and allow that peace, that perfect peace to be in them. In Jesus' name, amen. 103 years old. Kirk Douglas is not his real name. You see, he's Jewish. His real name is Isur Danielakovich. On February 13th, 1991, he was in a helicopter crash. Two people were killed, but he survived. He crushed three vertebrae when the helicopter came down. And he's three inches shorter. When I saw Kurt Douglas, and I saw that, that looked like Spartacus to me. <laughs> he's too short. And then I found out he's three inches shorter because of the impact of the crash. And it made him three inches shorter. But it made him ask the question because it really got his attention and it bothered him. And it shook him at 83 years old. Um, Why am I alive and the others died? This bothered him. He had to have an answer to this. And as a result, he rededicated his life to Judaism. As a young man, he forsook it all. And he says, I don't want to be famous and I want to be rich. And that's what he had. And then it took this crisis in his life to sort of have a wake-up call. And as a result of it, he had his second bar mitzvah at the age of 83. Does everybody know what a bar mitzvah is? When you're 13 years old, you're allowed, you're considered to be able to study the scripture seriously with the men. Well, he did that, but then he blew it off. Just like a, young, a lot of young people uh, grow up in the church and then they forsake it and they go through some crisis in life and they, they try to get back to where they were. That's what happened to Kurt Douglas. And as a result, he really did have his second bar mitzvah at the age of 83. It caused his son, Michael Douglas, to return to his Jewish faith. And if you saw any of the video clips, you saw the love between that father and his son, and it was genuine. Kurt Douglas had to go through a crisis to come back to his faith. My prayer um, is that he came to know his Jewish Messiah before all this. In closing, let me say this. Jesus came as a child. He bore your sins in his death on the cross. He is coming again, as we read this morning, in power and glory. He is gonna reign forever. Nothing's gonna change that. You will either be there rejoicing in his kingdom with him or you will be with those who have been cast out. Those in his kingdom will be there because they have chosen Jesus as their king. 
The Bible says, choose yourself this day whom you will serve. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. That's my choice. I encourage you to make the right choice and to follow Jesus Christ. He's the only way you're gonna find peace, perfect peace, and you're not gonna find it in anything else except that one way, amen? The last thing we read here in verse 31, it says, arise, okay, arise, and let us go from here. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we consider the great promise, the gift of your peace that you want to give to us, but you will not force us. You give us so much proof through prophecies being fulfilled that you are the Messiah. And Lord, I pray this morning for those that don't have to be hit along the side of the head with a two by four, they're not stubborn, but they would respond to the free gift that you offered to die in their place on Calvary's cross. And Lord, as your word says today, if we hear your voice, don't harden your heart, but allow the Prince of Peace to come in you and allow that peace, that perfect peace to be in them. In Jesus' name, amen.